Okay, this is really the first session after the introduction of, of our series on uh, Christology or the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, today and, uh, and next week as well, so the handout that you have will serve you for two weeks. So if you could hang on to those notes from this week until next, I'll be picking up about midway through. Um, but we'll be looking at the eternality and deity of Jesus Christ. And just a, a comment or two, um, this information really is um, it's really pitched at a Bible college level, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's pretty serious stuff. Uh, I've tried to put in front of you the best resources that I could possibly find. And uh, John Walford's book on the, the Lord Jesus Christ, I will uh, quote uh, often. And matter of fact, there's extensive citations here from John Walford. And, uh, and also from Mark Jones from his book, Knowing Christ. And uh, so I'm, I'm trying to put together for you good resources so that not only, as I prayed just a moment ago, can we accurately understand the person and work of the Lord Jesus, but be able to explain to others why we believe what we believe and to know exactly where in the scriptures we will go to support our convictions. So that's that's really important that we be able to, to do that. And... Um, uh, I've gotten a few comments about when we meditate on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and I am encouraging all of us to uh, sort of intentionally find something that, that you're learning in this class to think about each day as we meditate on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because actually Paul tells us in Colossians 3, if then we've been raised with Christ, let us set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. So there's the, the Pauline imperative to set our minds on things above. And we live in an age of great distractions and, and trivialities and all sorts of nonsensical things. And the good news is that we have the treasure trove of Scripture to fill our minds and our hearts so that we can honor Christ with all of our lives. And so the encouragement that I give you is to meditate on these things. And so I guess there was a, a comment made about the Old Testament and how do we meditate on Christ if, if we are just looking at the New Testament. And I said, well, you shouldn't just look at the New Testament because Christ is all throughout the Old Testament. So we'll be looking at the totality of Revelation and Christ is, is in all of Scripture. And, and so not necessarily mentioned in every passage, not necessarily in every chapter, but in virtually every book of the Scriptures, Christ is pictured. And so we'll be looking today specifically at how the New Testament and the Old Testament passages correlate with each other uh, regarding the, the deity and the eternality and the pre-existence of Christ. Well, years ago, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and I know you subscribe to this, but uh, it's important that we understand why we believe. If you do not believe in the unique deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian whatever else you may be. We are face to face with the fact that God, the eternal Son, has been in this world and that he took upon him human nature, that's his incarnation, and dwelt among us, a man amongst men, God-man. We are face to face with the mystery and the marvel of the incarnation and of the virgin birth. It's all here and it shines out in all the fullness of of its amazing glory. We live in times when there are many who would suggest that they are Christians, and, and yet they, they either 
uh, do not subscribe to the Trinity or they do not subscribe to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, if you've ever spoken with the Jehovah's Witnesses, they do not subscribe to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their version, the New World uh, Translation, in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They, they supply a, an indefinite article, uh, and, you know, so that's, that's problematic. Uh, they do not recognize the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't recognize the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're lost. There's a, a vast number of people in St. Louis, and on Highway 40, you can see their temple. They call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. But they do not believe in the Jesus Christ of the Bible. They, they would claim that they're believers in the Lord Jesus, but they, their testimony, according to their doctrine, is they are not genuine believers. There are any number of cults and false religions that, that we need to know how to answer. And if they knock on your door, they are programmed to explain to you what their convictions are, and, and they can be very persuasive, and you need to know why you believe, and you need to know where you would go in the scriptures to support your convictions. If, you, if someone were to ask you, why do you believe in the eternality of Christ? Uh, and if someone were to say to you, and this is often the case, well, Jesus Christ never claimed to be God. Where, where would you go in scripture to, to, to rebut that? It's, it's actually very easy to do, um, but I, we've got to be prepared. You, you've got to know when you hear these false statements why they're false and how you would accurately uh, rebut them. And the scripture tells us to speak the truth in love. So we speak it graciously, but you've got to have convictions that are rooted in a solid understanding of scripture. So that's, that's one of the key reasons we're doing this. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, they that deny Christ to be God must greatly rest or, or twist or else deny the scripture to be the word of God. One of the confessions, and I, I've got references in the notes to both the Nicene Creed from 381, and it was later amended in 425, um, a, a pivotal confession of the, of the Christian faith, um, and also the Belgic Confession, 1561. The, the Belgic Confession is one of three documents that, uh, that really constitute what's called the, the three forms of unity. You've got the, the Canons of Dort, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Belgic Confession. And, and those who are familiar with the Dutch Reformed tradition know what I'm referring to. And those who are not familiar with the Dutch Reform, maybe that's not familiar to you. In American Presbyterianism, you'd be familiar, hopefully, with the Westminster Standards. But the Belgic Confession has, among all of the Reformed confessions, one of the most clear statements of the eternality and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so often we, we run into folks who say, no creed but Christ. Um, I don't, I'm not even familiar with the historic creeds and confessions of the Christian church. That, that, that should not be the case. We should all be familiar with church history to some extent. We should be conversant with these, these hard-fought, hard-won confessions and catechisms in the Christian faith. And matter of fact, there's a, I've got an appendix in the back about the battles that were waged over the Nicene Creed, where they were actually debating and, and, and ultimately upheld the deity and the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we need to know these things. Uh, that's part of our heritage. It's a very pivotal part of our heritage. But the Belgic Confession, we believe, and this is uh, a section, uh, it's very thorough, 
that Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, is the only begotten Son of God, begotten from eternity, not made nor created. That's essentially Nicene language, for then he would be a creature, but co-essential and co-eternal with the Father, the express image of his person and the brightness of his glory, equal unto him in all things. He is the Son of God, not only from the time that he assumed our nature, but from all eternity, as these testimonies, when compared together, teach us. Moses saith that God created the world, and John says that all things were made by that word which he called God. And the apostle says that God uh, make the worlds by his Son, likewise that God created all things by Jesus Christ. Therefore, so what they're doing in this confession, they're knitting together, very important sections of Scripture. Therefore, it must needs follow that he who is called God, the Word, the Son, and Jesus Christ did exist at that time when all things were created by him. Therefore, the prophet Micah, and this is from Micah 5.2, says his goings forth have been from old, of old, from everlasting. In the apostle, he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. He, therefore, is that true, eternal, and almighty God whom we invoke, worship, and serve. I, 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 you'd be hard-pressed to find a, a Christian confession that is more explicit and more faithful to the Scriptures than the Belgic Confession on the deity and the eternality of Christ. Some of these statements, and we'll, the reason I've decided to break this into two parts is because the, 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 son of the, the understanding of what it means that Jesus is the Son of God and what it means to be eternally begotten by the Father is, is actually a subject that's been debated. And there have been some very prominent Christian theologians and pastors who have been very inaccurate on the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of them have corrected their ways. But, for instance, this, this particular confession says he is the Son of God not only from the time that he assumed our nature, but from eternity. There are a number of, of, of theologians, and the, some people would consider very conservative, that have adopted a, a point of view called incarnational sonship, that Jesus became the Son of God at the incarnation, that he was not previously the Son of God. If I mentioned some of the names, you'd be shocked. Some of them have recanted, they were, they, they, but it, some, it took some of them 14, 15 years in the pulpit to finally recognize that this was not an accurate understanding of Scripture. But incarnational sonship is, is not what the Scripture teaches. He has always been the Son of God, and you need to know why. You need to know why that's the case and why it's important. Well, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ... Um, and again, I'm going to be making frequent reference to John Walbert's book. I, I had the privilege of being at Dallas Seminary when he was the, the president of the school. And uh, what, a, what a godly, wonderful man uh, John Walbert was. He left a great legacy uh, to the church. But a plain reading of the New Testament. And this next expression is very important, including its use of the Old Testament. So we, we don't read the New Testament in a vacuum. We look at the New Testament and how it uses the Old Testament and the Old Testament speaks very often of Jesus Christ, explains why the Christian church has firmly held, even to the point of death, that the man, Christ Jesus, was no ordinary man, but also God. Not a God, but truly God, co-eternal, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. Now, very clear New Testament texts to look at. 
and and I, they've been reproduced for you here. We could go. There's more. There's more. But these are this is sample. Uh, John one one in the opening, the, the prologue of the of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John twenty twenty eight. Now keep in mind when. Thomas makes this statement, my Lord and my God, you'll find other instances where an angel appeared and someone would bow down and they would be promptly rebuked and say, no, don't bow down to me. You only bow down to Jesus Christ. But John 20, Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Romans 9, 5. To them, this is speaking to the, to the, to the Jews, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, who is God over all, blessed forever, forever. Amen. Not for part of the time, but forever. This is on the deity of Christ. Titus 2, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory. of the, And here's the, a very unique title. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.8. This is a, a wonderful passage to remind your, your Jehovah's Witness acquaintance. When they say that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, remind them of Hebrews 8, 1, 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Do you see the implication there? That the Father is testifying that the Son is God. Now, you know that, but, but it's important that you know where you would go without having your notes in front of you. If someone were to stand and, and, and come in your house, and, or maybe you're having coffee with someone, and they make some statement that Jesus never claimed to be God, or where would you go in the scripture to support the deity of Christ? And of course, you've got your Bible and your, your purse or your suitcase, whatever the case may be, and you know exactly where to go. You know how to answer those questions. You need to have to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Second Peter 1, 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All of them extremely clear. Could not be more clear as to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, I mentioned earlier that the, the Old Testament is integral to our understanding of, of Jesus Christ. It is. It, it's, it's not strictly a New Testament doctrine. You're, you, you may be surprised at some of these things, but, uh, but some of these passages take some work uh, to, to look up, but they're most encouraging to see the, the uniformity of the testimony of Scripture from old to new. And, and so you've got the, in the, the book of Revelation, the Apostle John uses language to describe Jesus that has its origin in Isaiah's words. So here you've got John the Apostle in, in the book of Revelation making direct citations to the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is testifying to the deity of Christ. And John the Apostle is recognizing those passages as referring to the Lord Jesus himself in his deity. So Jesus is referred to in Revelation 1 as the first and the last. Well, that's an affirmation of his eternality. And if you were to look at Isaiah 41, verse 4, I, the Lord, and that's Yahweh, when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and, and, and Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus is Jehovah, uh, the Trinity is Jehovah, the Father is Jehovah, Jesus is Jehovah, you may be surprised by that, but it's very clear that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. But here you've got Revelation 1 referring to the Lord Jesus Christ and Isaiah 41, 4, from which that was actually directly referred. 
And they're identifying in Isaiah 41 that that passage is referring to, to Christ. In Revelation 2, in Isaiah 44, 6, so you've got the New Testament and the Old Testament. You can, you can look at these and, and see the direct linkage with them. And later in Revelation, Revelation 22, the apostle calls the Lord Jesus Christ Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And what's he doing? He's taking language directly from Isaiah 48, where the, the scripture says, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. And so here we have John affirming the deity, and we have John relating to the book of Isaiah, uh, referring to the Lord Jesus. And, and here you have Jesus Christ is identified as Jehovah, as Yahweh. And so maybe you've, you've never seen that before, but Jesus Christ is explicitly identified as Yahweh, as Jehovah. Now, Yahweh is also refers to the Trinity, refers to the Father, refers to the Spirit, but, but, but Jesus Christ is identified as Yahweh. Look at, at Isaiah 6, and that's a passage that we're, we're all familiar with. That's where the prophet Isaiah had this vision, and we would call it a... Some, some would call it a theophany. A theophany is a, is a revelation of God, uh, not face-to-face. No one could actually see God face-to-face and not perish in their corruptible bodies, but a, a, a manifestation of God. Specifically, it's a Christophany. A Christophany is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 6 is a Christophany. It's a manifestation of Jesus Christ. This is when you, Isaiah saw... The Lord high and lifted up on his throne, and you had the seraphim that were calling holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and uh, that's Isaiah 6, 5. Well, who was Isaiah seeing? If, if you just had Isaiah 6, you, you might not know the answer to that, but you'll notice, how's he identified? The Lord, L-O-R-D, of hosts, that's Yahweh of hosts, Jehovah of hosts, and then in John 12, we, the scripture says that he saw Jesus and spoke of him, John 12, 41. So Isaiah saw a Christophany. Isaiah saw a direct manifestation of Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. There are other examples that are cited here where in John 17, it's, it's interesting, where in the high priestly prayer, uh, shortly before our Lord went to the cross, he's praying for his disciples and for the disciples to come, who would later be disciples. And Jesus is praying that the glory that he had with the Father before the creation of the world. And Isaiah claims that God does not give his glory to anyone else in Isaiah 42, 8. So Jesus is identifying himself very clearly with God. And Jesus uh, is, is being attested in any number of passages. There are other examples, for instance, Philippians 2 and Isaiah 45. All of these, the, the scriptures frequently refer to Christ in the Old Testament. And it, once you begin to see the, the way in which the New Testament and the Old Testament fit hand in glove with each other, and they should. They were both inspired, of course, by the Holy Spirit, and, and it points to Christ. It clearly testifies to Christ. So if you, want to, if you want to meditate on Christ, you've got 66 books that you should be able to use to, to, to work with. No problem whatsoever. You're not limited to 27. You're not limited to the, to the New Testament text to, me, to meditate on Christ. 
Let's talk about the difference between pre-existence and eternality. They are related, but they are not the same. We'll begin by looking, by way of introduction, the scripture talks about the fact that Christ is eternal in Micah 5.2. I mean, turn over in your scriptures to this little minor prophet called Micah, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, but right there in those precious little minor prophets, so-called. But as for you, this is one of those passages that that a Jewish believer would know cold because a Jewish believer would, would have learned this. They, they, they know Isaiah 53, they know Isaiah 7.14, they know Isaiah 9.6, they know Micah 5.2. They know all of these passages because they've had to defend their faith to their Jewish friends. But Micah 5.2 is one of those passages that every Jewish believer knows. But as for you, Bethlehem, not just any Bethlehem, but Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, just a little place on the wayside, from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago. Now, you could stop there. That, that would speak of pre-existence. But then, it goes, but then the scripture says, from the days of eternity. That first statement, from long ago, would, would attest to pre-existence. What do I mean? What's the difference? Pre-existence simply means that Jesus Christ existed prior to his incarnation. He, he, he existed prior to taking on human flesh. The pre-existence is related to eternity, but it's not sufficient to make the case for eternity in and of itself. Well, it, it makes the case, but it's not the strongest case. I'll, I'll, make, I'll simply say that. But here's Micah saying that Jesus Christ, we, we know who Micah's referring to. This is clearly a, a new, an Old Testament reference to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who's coming uh, to be the deliverer of, of Israel. And his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. No inception and no end. Alpha and Omega. And in John 8.58, this is a, just a wonderful passage. This, this one is, is one you've got to know. John 8.58. Some of you already know where we're going with this one. But John 8.58. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. And he's... Um, He's in the mixed, uh, midst of an audience that's not altogether friendly. Uh, but John eight fifty eight, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, do you know what he's saying? He's not saying I was. He's saying I am. You, that, that same expression, by the way, occurs in Exodus chapter 3, 14. When you had the manifestation in the burning bush, and that's Yahweh manifesting himself. And, and so here you have a statement, Jesus is identifying himself with God. There's no question about it. The fact that there's no question, because therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So someone says, where did Jesus ever claim to be God? Clearly his audience understood his, his affirmation. They were, they were accusing of blasphemy. The, the, the penalty for naming yourself to be God is, is to be stoned. This is crystal clear. Anyone who says Jesus never claimed to be God has never read the scriptures. And you should know where you would go in the scriptures to point out the error of the ways and then point them to Jesus Christ and plead for their repentance. Because with someone who doesn't understand who Jesus is and doesn't affirm that, they're, that he's God himself can never be saved. 
That includes your, your Mormon friend, your JW friend, and any other friend that you've got that doesn't understand what it means to be a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you've got John eight fifty eight, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. I, I refer to this wonderful passage in, uh, in one of Paul's prison epistles last time, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. This was the one that I said really needs to be a subject of great meditation. For by him, by Jesus Christ, how, how do we know this is referring to Jesus Christ? Because it's, it's, it's obvious that the context identifies it as Christ. For by him all things were created, all things, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, the angelic realms. All things have been created through him. He's the agency of creation. And for him, he is the object of all creation. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He not only created all things, he sustains all things. Without the direct intervention of Jesus Christ, the creation would literally explode. It, would, it wouldn't even subsist. He's, he's holding everything together. He's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. One of the most wonderful passages as to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in all of Scripture, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Well, pre-existence. Um, there are a number of scriptures that don't explicitly refer to eternality. Micah 5.2, for instance, speaks of eternality. It, it also speaks of preexistence, but Micah 5.2 also speaks of eternality. But there are some that don't explicitly affirm eternality. They simply speak of his existence prior to taking on human flesh. And we'll, we'll look at those and I'll explain the difference. But I would tell you that throughout church history, those who have affirmed preexistence have also affirmed eternality. It's not that they're contradictory to each other. They were much hand in glove with each other. So what would be statements that would affirm the preexistence of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, his, his existence prior to his taking on human flesh? Well, his, his divine origin, uh, his, his heavenly origin. When I say divine origin, that's, that's a misstatement. He, he, he has no origin. Uh, of he is divine, uh, but his heavenly origin, that's, that, that would be the best way I could describe it. But John 3, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. So there you have the father sending the son, right? So they're, they're clearly prior to his incarnation. He sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3, more clear. He that comes from above is above all. And he goes on, he that comes from heaven is above all. And so you've got a statement that Jesus is preexistent. He makes the same statement in John 6. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. So he comes from heaven, preexistence. This is prior to him taking on human flesh. John 17 in the high priestly prayer, Jesus refers to Memories that he has of the glory that he had when he was with the Father prior to taking on human flesh, preexistence, and any number of other passages. Top of page four uh, in your notes. John Walford makes this very important note that there are a number of other lines of evidence for his preexistence. The existence prior to taking on human flesh. 
One that comes to mind that's not even referenced here, but Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth a son born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. There was another one that just came to mind. But you think of other lines of evidence, his works of creation. It would be Colossians 1, for instance, very clear. Providence, preservation, promises made in eternity past, theophanies, that's Isaiah 6, for instance. It's affirmed in John chapter 12. Uh, any number of ways in which this is the case. Well, we'll move on beyond preexistence to eternity. And this comes from John Walbert's book, Jesus Christ, Our Lord. It's just a, a wonderful book. We, we used it when I was at Dallas. And, and it's a wonderful book. It's available. It's a paperback book, very affordable. But we're transitioning now from preexistence to eternality. If Christ is not eternal, then he came into existence in time and is created and therefore vastly different from the being and attributes of God. Why, why is it important that we understand that Christ is preexistent? Because without that, he, there's, he's not divine. He is, he's not God. And so for us to be able to affirm his preexistence and his eternality is affirming his deity. And we need to be know why we can affirm these things. So eternality, though, is more than he was preexistent. To affirm that Christ existed from all eternity past is to attribute to him all that self-sufficiency and independence which is true of God. So Micah 5.2 is one of those passages that we looked at earlier that clearly, absolutely clearly affirms the eternality of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's highlighted here in your notes. The Old Testament foreview of Christ. Very explicit, absolutely crystal clear. Speaks of, of the, the one to be born in Bethlehem, and we read that just a little bit clearer. And that language could not be more explicit. That language uh, it could not be more direct in, in Micah 5.2 that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is self-existent from all eternity, without beginning, without end, is going forth to been from forever. Isaiah 9, 6. Flip over to Isaiah 9, 6 in in your scriptures. This, again, is one of those that any Jewish believer knows, Isaiah 9, 6. My wife one time was taken by her dad to get her deprogrammed after she affirmed her belief in Jesus as the Messiah. She was taken to meet with the rabbi in hopes that the rabbi could set her straight. So they... The three of them, the rabbi, my wife, and her father sat in the rabbi's study for quite a while. And the rabbi got a good earful of messianic prophecy that afternoon. And Isaiah 53 and, and Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7, Micah 5, and he didn't have any answers for those things. To my knowledge, he, he never turned to the Lord Jesus as his Messiah. But he had a very clear testimony of what it means to be a believer in, the, in Jesus as the Messiah, Yeshua, HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. So this is one of those wonderful passages. Any Jewish believer knows these things. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called. Now, who are we referring to? Jesus, right? Crystal clear. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Okay, Mighty God. Is, is that an attestation uh, of, of his etern- of the fact that he's deity, eternal father, eternal, the father of eternity. And so the, all of these are names for Jesus, every single one of them. Prince of peace, 
Eternal Father, Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, and, and He is all of those. But the, just these notes that, that you have, the very name uh, Mighty God or Everlasting Father, it, it could be the Father of Eternity. And, and so uh, the, the affirmation is, is that He is I Am, that He is the self-existent One, that He is Jehovah, that He is, is Yahweh. And so here you have an affirmation of His eternality. Well, the New Testament top of page 5, is, is even more clear. And so you've got the prologue to the Gospel of John, and you know this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Was is very, very clear. There's no doubt about what that means. It does not mean that he, he came into existence at some point, uh, but when everything came into existence, he already was. He, he had always existed. He had no beginning or end. He was God. And not formerly God, but he's always been God, the self-existent one. And so speaking of his timeless existence, his, his eternal existence, ultimately taking on human flesh. Galatians 4 speaks of that, of course. John three sixteen. any number of passages speak of the incarnation. And we'll, we'll deal with that on a separate uh, occasion. But John 8:58, we looked at uh, even earlier. This, this is one of those passages that, that just any believer's got to know. Before Abraham was, I am. That, that's a showstopper right there. That, that all of his hostile audience understood exactly what he was saying. Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the one from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. He's claiming to be the self-existent one. He's claiming to be Yahweh himself. This is blasphemy, according to their faulty understanding, because of their unsaved hearts. And, and so it was so clear, they took up stones to stone him. Jesus claimed to be God, John eight fifty eight. The Apostle Paul, we looked at Colossians 1 earlier, uh, so we don't need to turn to it again. But the, the, another bullet point, the eternity of Christ. This is a point that, that we will develop next time in, in greater detail. But John Walvoord refers to an eternal covenant. People use different terminology. The Reformed folks will talk about a covenant of redemption. Regardless of whether you use the word covenant or you use some other language, it's very clear that there was an agreement in eternity past between the Father and the Son. And John Walvoord is referring to this as an eternal covenant. And John Walvoord is not a Reformed theologian, or was not a Reformed theologian per se. But Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 He's talking about this, 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 this agreement, this, this, this undertaking in eternity past that all of us are beneficiaries of in Christ. Every single one of us who name the name of Christ are beneficiaries of this eternal agreement between the Father and the Son. Ephesians 1, 4. This is blessed be, verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. All of your blessings are because you are in Christ. All of your righteousness is because you are in Christ. Your standing is because you are in Christ. Just as he, the Father, chose us in him, this is Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, we, we spoke of this earlier when we went through the doctrines of grace. And if you remember uh, the, the doctrine of unconditional election, you're, it's all suddenly coming back to you, I know. But it, when he chose us and him before the foundation of the world. 
who chose us, the Father chose us, to be in him, and so in Christ. So there was a very clear undertaking between the Father and the Son in eternity past to save an elect seed, to save those upon whom the Father set his saving love. And in John 17, we looked at this when we studied the, the design of the atonement or definite atonement or limited atonement. And Jesus prays for those whom the Father had given to him. And, and so when did he give them to him? He gave them to him in eternity past. In time, in history, Jesus took on human flesh in the incarnation. But all of that was predicated upon an undertaking in eternity past between the Father and the Son that John Walbert refers to as an eternal covenant. And so when, when we look at what difference does it make to affirm the eternality of Jesus Christ, it's very clear that, that to affirm that he is God requires that he be eternal. Otherwise, he is not self-existent. Other, uh, otherwise, he is not God himself. But if we don't understand the eternality of Jesus Christ, we don't understand Ephesians 1.4. And we've got this covenant, this agreement, this undertaking between the Father and the Son that every single one of us who names Christ are direct beneficiaries of that eternal undertaking, that eternal agreement. We've been chosen in, in, in eternity past, and we've been saved because Jesus undertook to do that work which was necessary to effect the saving mercies of the Father. Well, there are titles, and I, I mentioned some of this earlier about the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jehovah, Yahweh. Maybe you've never thought of, of that. Um, but the, the Christ of the New Testament is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that the Father is not Jehovah. It does not mean that the Trinity is not Jehovah, but Jesus Christ is Jehovah. How do we know that? Zechariah, I'm on page 6 now. Zechariah chapter 12. This is another one of those wonderful passages that my Jewish believing friends know very well. They shall look unto me. Now, to understand this, go, go over to, to the book of Zechariah. It's, it's one of the end books in the uh, Minor Prophets, right before Malachi. Zechariah, if you look at the beginning of, of your English Bible in chapter 12 in our Bibles, the, the, this is the word of the Lord, Yahweh, concerning Israel, right? So this is Yahweh speaking. We'll look at, at verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, referring to the Holy Spirit, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Well, Yahweh is speaking, right? We saw that in verse 1. The, the Lord is speaking concerning Israel. And, and here, me, first person, is, is identifying with the Lord. Well, who is me, the one whom has been pierced? And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And so you, you have this Trinitarian picture in verse 10 of this great work of the redemption of, of God's saving, of his elect seed of Israel, when they will repent and turn to their Messiah. But they will look on me. But, but it's Yahweh that's speaking in, in Zechariah chapter 12. So just something to, to consider. Jeremiah 23 Christ is, is referred to as the Lord or Jehovah, our righteousness. If we were to if we look at verse 6 in particular, Elohim, another, another name for God. Isaiah 40, verse 3. 
Christ is spoken in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, as both the Lord, Jehovah, and Elohim. And you can correlate that with Luke 3. So here you have the New Testament and the Old Testament hand in glove. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, Christ is referred to mighty God, mighty Elohim. Elohim, of course, is, is a name for God. And, and so I, a direct reference to Jesus Christ as God. The Lagos, this is a Johannine word. Uh, it's, it's the God, the John was very fond of, of this word on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. A number of aspects, and, and we won't necessarily delve into all of these just because we don't have time, but a, a, a name that was given to, to, to Christ himself. So that's, we'll stop there. But, but I, I, the reason I'm stopping there is on page 7 and through the, the rest of this, this little treatise I've given you in the handouts, it's going to deal with the Son of God and the one who is be eternally begotten and begotten of the Father. And there has been great confusion, uh, in, 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 even in our times, as to what the Sonship of God, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, really means. And when did he become Son? There are those who have affirmed that he became son when he took on human flesh. That is not accurate. That is not. He's always been son. In in Psalm chapter two, uh, Psalm two, verse seven, um, there, Father uh, speaks of the Son. Today I've begotten you. What does that mean? So we'll look at Psalm two, verse seven, later. Phil Johnson just just published an article in the Master Seminary Journal that I came across this afternoon that is very detailed on, on uh, Psalm 2, verse 7, and it's parallel passage in Hebrews, so I'll, I won't give you all that. It's probably 30 pages long or something, but I'll give you some of the highlights. But, but we need to understand the, the, the importance of the eternality of Jesus Christ as Son. He's always been Son. He never had a time when he wasn't Son. He, he always will be the Son. He did not become Son when he took on human flesh. And you need, we need to understand why and why that's important. But think of all of these proofs that, that we've just touched on. And, and these haven't been all of them. You, there are more that are referenced in the handout as to, to how you can know that the Scripture speaks absolutely clearly as to the, the, uh, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, his preexistence, his eternality. And these are all things that we can be meditating upon. And you're not limited, as I mentioned earlier, to the New Testament. Some beautiful, beautiful passages in the Old Testament from Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, uh, Genesis 3.15 is clearly a, a passage that refers to Jesus Christ, uh, the, the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel uh, in Genesis 3.15. Any number of passages in the scriptures and, and pictures of Christ throughout the scriptures. So wonderful affirmation and much, much material for us to meditate upon and to fill our minds and our hearts with so that we worship Jesus Christ uh, as he ought to be worshiped. Father, our desire is to exalt the name of Christ and to speak of him uh, often, to speak and to meditate upon him throughout the day, uh, that he might occupy our hearts. We're, we're told, Lord, to set our minds on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. And so, Lord, thank you for making the affirmations of who Jesus is so very, very clear and giving us much fertile ground to, to, to work with and to meditate upon and to occupy our hearts May we be those, Lord, who think often of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.